God, those communists are amazing. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Journalist Podcast. I'm Mike, he, him. And tonight, I'm here with Sterling, he, him. Ward, he, him. And our guest, Jared, he, him. From Australia. How's it going, Jared? Going excellent. Yeah, good to have you back, man. Yeah, so good. Yeah, I guess I want to try and like connect this to our previous episode with you because I guess the overarching theme would be, despite what people think about Australia being another like Scandinavia on the other side of the world, it's actually just a fucking colonial hellhole, much like Canada is, like a protectorate of Great Britain and fucking treats their indigenous people like absolute shit. And not to mention immigrants, and we could talk about all the uh, the camps for refugees on the islands as well. But in particular, the articles you brought here tonight, it's more of like neoliberalism and privatization that I think we're going to focus on tonight and how the U.S. actually cooed the Australian government at one point, which I didn't realize. So uh, you want to tell us a little bit about that? So like most people in Australia refer to it as the constitutional crisis of 1970, uh, I believe it was 71, no, 1975, which was the, yeah, it was the Gough Whitlam constitutional crisis most people call it that which is so funny to call it that like it's very obviously a coup and most people understand not most people but most historians or whatever who look into this shit understand it as a coup but for the regular population we call it just this crisis that magically emerged out of like a constitutional issue where our governor general invoked his archaic uh, wizardry and powers that he got from the uh, pedophile monarchy in England to dissolve our government, basically, which has never happened before and hasn't happened since. Yeah. So he like used his, spe- I forget the governor general's name, but he used his specific like powers that have never been used before or since granted to him by the queen to dissolve our government. And it didn't come out until much later that it was actually like MI6 and the CIA who were like sort of orchestrating things behind the scenes. So yeah. Always those guys. <laughs> yeah, it's always those guys. <laughs> and you never hear anything about this. Like I've never heard of this before. Yeah. And I'm going to really show my ass if you fucking said something about it in the last episode and I'm just not remembering. Um, I think I might have mentioned it, but no, we didn't go into detail. Oh, uh, fuck. Yeah. All right. So you got an article here that actually I think describes it pretty well. And it's called The British American Coup That Ended Australian Independence by John Pilcher. It's in The Guardian. Did you want to read some of that for us? Because uh, I think the listeners will probably like to hear your smooth Australian accent rather than hearing me again. Yeah, I'll read that article. Um, just for context, because the article doesn't go into it. The prime minister I'm talking about was Gough Willem, who got into office in 1968 or 69. Uh, nice. And he... Uh, <laughs> And he also, um, he was our, like, most sort of left-wing... Okay, here's the best way to put it for Americans. He was Bernie Sanders. So okay. that's the... Yeah, so he's Bernie Sanders. He gave us free healthcare, uh, free, like, Medicare for all age groups. Like, you go to the doctor, completely free. You go to the hospital, completely free. He also gave us free college or university, completely free. You go there, don't pay a cent. He also attempted to nationalize our minds. That was the third thing he tried to do. He didn't succeed with nationalizing the mines, but he succeeded with the other two. He also condemned the war in Vietnam, and he wanted to withdraw uh, all of our troops. So that was, those are the four main things. So obviously, anyone who knows anything about America can see that these things are like not tenable with sort of U.S. hegemony, basically. Yeah. So just as like context, that's basically what he did. So yeah. But did he give you guys good memes like Bernie gave us? <clears throat> That's really all we care about at this point is any sweet Bernie memes. I think I remember you mentioning him 
the last time we had you on, you're telling us about how he was this sort of a, a sock dem hero for you guys. And it was cool to hear. And unfortunately, because the sock dems can only go so far, it's not like any of the discrimination or fucking colonialism was decreased. But, you know, at least the white people got some benefits out of it. So, yeah, I believe he also did the uh, Marbo. The Marbo decision was under him as well. What's that? Um, I don't know if you guys know who Marbo is. Mm-mm. Yeah, so he did the land rights for indigenous people. So the Marbo decision was this guy called, whose last name was Marbo, he was an Aboriginal guy. He went to the high court over land rights and basically this huge sweeping decision that was sort of unprecedented happened under Gough Whitlam, which was bringing in the Land Rights and the Land Rights Act, which is why now in Australia, whenever new development happens in Australia, Indigenous people can put in land rights claims and that requires that it, it's it is bullshit and nowhere near enough obviously it's like this sort of half-assed whatever you know you know it's never going to be enough so basically you can put in like a land rights claim and that like halts development in a certain area and they have to go through a process of investigating and doing archaeology often to find if there's any artifacts or anything in the ground so it's like it's good but it's sort of like i don't know it's it's like not enough obviously but yeah, that was another thing he did was the big Marbo decision and the uh, land rights for indigenous people. I don't know if you guys have any kind of like land rights for indigenous people in the in America. No, it's yeah. like so another episode that I've yet to release because, again, I'm so far behind. Um, we did with Sophia Syntax from the Anger podcast, and it was all about decolonization and land back. And oh, my God, that girl is justifiably angry. And it's fucking great. Basically, the U.S. has made dozens and dozens of treaties, like hundreds of treaties, and broken every single fucking one. Over 400. Yeah. And I asked her, I'm like, so just explain, like, you know, land back at the basic level. Like, what does that actually look like in practice? For our, you know, our white settler listeners, like, on stolen land, like, what does that look like? She's like, the U.S. could literally just start by honoring any one of them. Just, like, start by honoring one treaty and just maybe progress from there. Like, just start honoring some of the treaties. And that would be a huge step. It's just, that will never happen as long as this country exists. Right. So um, one, of the, one of the main things with the land rights thing was abolishing terra nullius. This is like a huge sort of symbolic thing. Was that ever applied to America? Because I only know of it in the Australian context. They called it manifest destiny, I guess. Oh, God. Right. So we had a terra nullius, which meant nobody lived here before white settlers. Yeah. That was formally abolished as being like part of the country's history because of this decision. This was a huge thing back when this happened. Obviously, it's way before my time. And since then, we've had, you know, we've backtracked on a lot of stuff. But yeah, it was huge when that happened. That's sort of the context of the era when Gough Whitlam was around. So this article here is the British American coup that ended Australian independence by John Pilger. Pilger? I don't know. He's on the, uh, the Guardian. So you guys can look it up if you want. I'll put the link in the show notes. Awesome. Uh, and let me know if you guys want to butt in. Oh, we will, bro. <laughs> awesome. Across the media and political establishment in Australia, silence has descended on the memory of the great reforming Prime Minister Gough Whitlam. His achievements are recognised, if grudgingly, his mistakes noted in false sorrow, but a crucial reason for his extraordinary political demise will, they hope, be buried with him. Australia briefly became an independent state during the Whitlam years, 72 to 75, and American commentator wrote that no country had reversed its posture in international affairs so totally without going through a domestic revolution. Whitlam ended his nation's colonial servility. He abolished royal patronage, moved Australia towards the non-aligned movement, supported zones of peace, and opposed nuclear weapons testing. Based. Yeah, I know, it's awesome. It's about the best you can hope for 
within like a country like this, basically, going on. Although not regarded as on the left of the Labour Party, Whitlam was a maverick social democrat of principle, pride and propriety. Okay, I got to step in there. He was on the left. The Labour Party is a right-wing party. It's always been a right-wing party. Don't be fooled by the name. Even then, they were right-wing? Yeah. Oh, and they've been shifting further right as time's gone on. Well, I mean, of, of course. Like, yeah. As always. He would not have been considered on the right of the party. That's just ridiculous, but whatever. No one who does that stuff is going to be... Yeah, it's like the best you can hope for. He believed that a foreign power should not control his country's resources and dictate its economic and foreign policies based. Uh, see, that's where he fucked up. <laughs> that's why he got cooed. You sound a little too much like Gaddafi there. He should have fucking left that one out. <laughs> That'll get you cooed every time, guarantee it. <laughs> he proposed to buy back the farm in drafting the first Aboriginal land rights legislation. His government raised the ghost of the greatest land grab in human history, Britain's colonization of Australia, and the question of who owned the island continent's vast natural wealth. Latin Americans will recognize the audacity and danger of this breaking free in a country whose establishment was welded to a great external power. Australians had served every British imperial adventure since the Boxer Rebellion was crushed in China. In the 1960s, Australia pleaded to join the US in its invasion of Vietnam, then provided black teams to be run by the CIA. US diplomatic cables published last year by WikiLeaks disclosed the names of leading figures in both main parties, including a future prime minister and foreign minister as Washington's informants during the Whitlam years. So yeah, literally had guys, our elected representatives were CIA informants. So how awesome's that? Yeah, nice. Sounds about right. Going on, Whitlam knew the risk he was taking. The day after his election, he ordered that his staff should not be vetted or harassed by the Australian security organisation, ASIO. Um, ASIO is our CIA, basically, if anyone doesn't know. Um, we've got our own CIA or MI6, it's called ASIO. Hey, good job. Congrats. <laughs> it's, um, it's like yours, but they don't even get guns or anything, so they're kind of <laughs> lame. Uh, well, yeah. how, how do you assassinate black men without guns? I know, they're fucking losers. They can't do shit. <laughs> they just got like a box of snakes and spiders. It's Australia, bro. Just step outside. You got a natural gun. <laughs> Whoever your target is. You just issue the guy's big, thick mitts to pick shit up and throw. You just stumbled into like, I imagine, you know the scene in Men in Black when they open up all those fancy silver weapons? And, like, that's Australia's version. Instead of, like, the shellfish, like, CIA heart attack gun, they have a poison from every animal in Australia and, like, a silvery, shiny gun in their arsenal. They don't have any, like, bullets. They just have, like, poisons from platypuses or whatever, like... No, what we're forgetting is they don't actually want to kill anyone because everyone's white in Australia. Oh, right, right. Yeah, you don't... Well, no, they're killing the Aboriginal people. Like, anybody who, like, really speaks up for, like, land back in Australia gets the, uh, the Irukandji gun. You guys know about the Irukandji? Yeah. It's crazy. The blue ring octopus, we um, throw that at people. Oh, yeah, that yeah. one's crazy. We got so many of the most dangerous animals in the world. It's so awesome. You have like all of them. <laughs> yeah, it's so cool. I have redback spiders I've found in my shoes. You know, literally the second deadliest spider in the world. And then yeah. in my backyard, yeah. I have the uh, funnel web. And I've had a funnel web walk into my house. That's the deadliest spider in the world. I've killed what one with my shoe. Um, <laughs> I'm very brave. This is life saying. in Australia, bro. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, no. it's crazy. I don't think I don't think brave's the word here. <laughs> Get the fuck out. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. So yeah, that's um that's ASIO. It's our uh, 
like our CIA. So going on, ASIO then is now tied to the Anglo-American intelligence. When his ministers publicly condemned the US bombing of Vietnam as corrupt and barbaric, a CIA station officer in Saigon said, we were told the Australians might as well be regarded as North Vietnamese collaborators. What? Yeah, I know. And that's like a pretty mild comment as well. And that's also like attributing way too much like, I don't know, awesome character to uh, Australian guys. Yeah, it's such a mild comment for a giant leap. Like, I know. Being like, oh, actually, it's bad to kill civilians. And they're like, oh, these guys are with the North Vietnamese. Yeah. These dudes are <laughs> fucking commies, bro. Did yeah, you yeah, like, criticize cool. us? <laughs> no killing innocents? Now that you put it like that, it's just modern right-wing rhetoric. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. So going on, Whitlam demanded to know if and why the CIA was running a spy base at Pine Gap near Alice Springs, a giant vacuum cleaner, which as Edward Snowden revealed recently, allows the US to spy on everyone. Try to screw us or bounce us, the Prime Minister warned the US ambassador, and Pine Gap will become a matter of contention. So basically, Gough Whitlam threatened to close Pine Gap, which is a big, basically a CIA base that we allow on our soil for some reason. Mm. Yeah, very normal thing to do as our country, very, very normal. That's a very free thing to do in a free country, you know? Yeah, mm -hmm. just like how we have, like, we have multiple U.S. military bases on our soil as well, like one in Darwin that has, like, a 10,000 Marines stationed at it or something stupid like that. At any point, Australia has, like, uh, I think about thirty to 50,000 American troops stationed here, so, which is not that many troops. It's totally normal shit. Yeah, just normal. Yeah, like, why? Because why not? <laughs> <laughs> Well, they're making sure we still have freedom and democracy. Um, <laughs> yeah, we just um, take it as normal. I see American soldiers around here all the time. So it's like, it's just a normal thing. The fact that people just don't even question that, dude. Like, Americans and Australians are like, they're just like, yeah, this is normal. Like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> it is so fucked. So yeah, Victor Marchetti, the CIA officer who had helped set up Pine Gap, later told me this threat to close Pine Gap caused apoplexy in the White House, a kind of Chile coup was set in motion. He came up in uh, Operation Gladio, by the way, in our series, Victor Marchetti. Really? Yeah, he's a no-name in uh, harboring Nazis to fight communists around Europe. Interesting. Well, it's interesting that he brought up Chile as a specific example. So, yeah. Pine Gap's top-secret messages were decoded by a CIA contractor, the TRW. One of the decoders was Christopher Boyce a young man troubled by the deception and betrayal of an ally. Boyce revealed that the CIA had infiltrated the Australian political and trade union elite and referred to the Governor-General of Australia, Sir John Kerr, as our man Kerr. Um, the Governor-General's the Queen's representative. He's like our head of state, technically. Mm -hmm. He's the guy who dissolved the government formally. So he has that power. This unelected guy has that power to dissolve our government if there's a constitutional crisis. Or like an opportunity for Pizza Hut franchise. Yes. <laughs> hey, uh, Jared, are you doing um, Coop, ironically? Um, what did I Did I say Coop? Yeah. Yeah, I meant Coop. Okay. Just making sure. They shoved him into a chicken coop. <laughs> <laughs> so, Kerr was not only the Queen's man, he had long-standing ties to Anglo-American intelligence. He was an enthusiastic member of the Australian Association for Cultural Freedom. That's the most fed name I've ever heard. Yeah, it sounds like the National Endowment for Democracy or any of those. Cultural freedom, God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this uh, group was described by Jonathan Quinty of the Wall Street Journal in his books, The Crimes of Patriots, as an elite invitation-only group exposed in Congress as being founded, funded, and generally run by the CIA. 
The CIA paid for Kerr's travel, built his prestige. Kerr continued to go to the CIA for money. So, yeah, he's just getting money from the CIA. Nice. You'd love to see it. It's pretty standard run-of-the-mill stuff. Yeah. So when Whitlam was re-elected for a second term in 1974, the White House sent Marshall Green to Canberra as ambassador. Green was an imperious, sinister figure who worked in the shadows of America's deep state. Known as the Coup Master, I almost said it. I almost said Coup Master. Why can't that be my name? <laughs> the Coup Master. <laughs> what a fucking sick like nickname to be given. <laughs> the fucking Coup Master. <laughs> yeah. So the Coup Master, Sterling, uh, had played a central role in the 1965 coup against President Sukarno in Indonesia, which cost up to a million lives. One of his first speeches in Australia to the Australian Institute of Directors was described by an alarmed member of the audience as an incitement to the country's business leaders to rise against the government. Not nearly as cool anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so uh, the Americans and British worked together. In 1975, Whitlam discovered that Britain's MI6 was operating against his government, so he knew. The Brits were actually decoding secret messages coming into my foreign affairs office, he said later. One of his ministers, Clyde Cameron, told me we knew MI6 was bugging cabinet meetings for the Americans. In the 1980s, senior CIA officers revealed that the Whitlam problem had been discussed with urgency by the CIA director, William Colby, and the head of MI6, Sir Morris Oldfield. A deputy director of the CIA said Kerr did what he was told to do. Nice. On the 10th of November 1975, Whitlam was shown a top-secret telex message sourced to Theodore Shackley, the notorious head of the CIA's East Asia Division, who had helped run the coup against Salvador Allende in Chile two years earlier. Shackley's message was read to Whitlam. It said that the Prime Minister of Australia was a security risk in his own country. The day before, Kerr had visited the headquarters of the Defence Signals Directorate, Australia's NSA, where he was briefed on the security crisis. On the 11th of November, the day Whitlam was to inform Parliament about the secret CIA presence in Australia, he was summoned by Kerr, invoking an archaic vice-regal reserve power. Kerr sacked the democratically elected Prime Minister, and the Whitlam problem was solved, and Australia politics never recovered, nor the nation its true independence. Damn. Yeah, like a completely bloodless coup. That sounds like some white people invading white people shit. Like, for yeah. sure. <laughs> it's like, we got to coup these motherfuckers. They said something about not killing innocents, so they're commies, but they're white, so that's a problem. I don't know if I said it before the intro or after, but, like, I wish I had done that, like, intentionally and, like, made that joke when you said that Australia doesn't have nukes, like, pointing out how fucking weak you guys are with your military. And I was saying how I was surprised that the U.S. hasn't invaded because, you know, that's what the U.S. does to countries without nukes. And then it turns out that actually is what happened. And it's not that I, you know, I'm such a good podcaster that I foreshadowed with my joke there. I just didn't notice that article that you said. I thought we were going to talk about water privatization tonight, which we are going to talk about. But that's like the next thing. It's just kind of funny that way. Yeah, it's crazy. It almost makes you wonder. It's like, why didn't they just do that in the other places they could? Not that cooing is good or anything. It's not good. But it's like, why'd they do it bloodlessly here and then do it with a lot of killing in other countries? And I think what it does come down to is just racism, basically. Mm -hmm. That's all it is. It's whose lives do you value and whose lives do you not value? Yeah, they just don't go to all the trouble in like countries with people of color in them, but they will in Australia. Like, well, we'll do it the quote unquote right way. We'll do it with briefcases and papers instead of AK-47s. Like, Mm. In those other places, they didn't have the coup master. <laughs> he really had it etched out. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting little thing. 
That was sort of the beginning of the end for like Australia having any kind of capacity to have some kind of like social democratic reform. That was the best we ever did. And in fact, the next time the Labour Party got into power, they got rid of our free university. So you can see how much the party had changed in just like four to eight years. I believe they got into power eight years later. And yeah, they got rid of free university. Not the right-wing party, the so-called like left-wing party got rid of free university. And of course, they've butchered Medicare and all that. That's all been butchered to hell. Costs money to go to a doctor. You get some of it back. You get like $18 back, but it costs like $90 to go to the doctor. So it's like, cool, I guess. Like, <laughs> that just makes my mouth salivate just hearing that, <laughs> just that to go to the doctor. Like, But like, what did people, what is the reaction? Are people just like bending over and taking it? Or did, was there any like resistance to it? Or people like, what the fuck? Like we have to pay now? Like, Yeah. So they tried to introduce like a Medicare levy, which was an additional $5 fee. And people were up in arms over that. And that never happened. So it has happened. It has happened where the people throw up their arms and be like, no, we're not doing this shit. But like, that's so like few and far between and like a lot of these changes and gouging sort of happens in the background like the reason why we only get $18 back is because $18 was the amount that was set during the 80s and we just froze it at $18 and obviously the cost of things have gone up significantly so $18 used to cover like 90% of the cost of going to the doctor but now it covers like I don't know whatever the percentage of $18 out of 90 is like 20% thereabouts that's how they do it they're very they're sneaky about it kind of that's like the opposite of the um the NFA fees being $200 here word because they thought that was like an unreachable amount of money for most people that they didn't want to have guns, aka working class people or people of color who said they were like, yeah, $200, that should keep guns out of the hands of people we don't want to have them forever. <laughs> yeah. What's the NFA? That's so that you could get like um, a short barrel rifle. One of the biggest ones is a suppressor. Yeah. Which, Mike, did you see that they changed the uh, Form 4 requirements? What do they do? It's e-file now. That's it? Yeah, it's an e-file now and it's a lot faster process. I guess that's why I didn't see it, because people are probably not up in arms about it, I guess. Yeah, no, they're actually pretty happy about it. They even sped up the Form 1 e-file process as well. Dude, is the U.S. accelerationist? Like, is the U.S. government trying to get more guns and silencers in the hands of more people? Like, what are we doing here? I'm about to start buying suppressors (laughs) like it's fucking cool, dude. (laughs) Oh, man, I wish I could have a gun. They're pretty sweet. There's a way you can get guns here legally, but it's, like, such a fuck around. And then you have to be part of, like, a registered club that shoots guns at targets or something. So they're all chuds. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, I was like, I don't want to hang out with those people. (laughs) You got to limit the lower classes from having guns, you see. Yeah, it's just a very expensive hobby. Such bullshit. But at the same time, I like murder rate and, like, (laughs) gun murder rate is, like, so much lower than yours, so... Yeah, I'll give you that. That's fair. Yeah. (laughs) I will rebut with guns are really cool, though. Yeah, I know. They're heaps cool. That's probably another thing we can talk about is guns in Australia. We actually had, uh, everyone could own a gun up until 1996, which was the year I was born. You could just buy a gun. You could walk around towns with a gun. Everyone had guns. Um, It was very normal. And then the Port Arthur massacre happened, which was the worst mass shooting in the world. I don't know if you guys know about the Port Arthur massacre in 1996. I'm pretty sure you mentioned that in the last episode too, but refresh our memory because why not? Yeah, so this guy killed like 40 people or something crazy like that. And it never happened before. Let me have a look how many people he killed. Yeah, we call that a Thursday here. So I think you made that joke the last time too. Did I? <laughs> this is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Once Port Arthur happened, oh yeah, 35 people died. 
they did a gun buyback and then we just banned guns and then everyone handed their guns in, the government bought them and destroyed them, and that was it. There was no, you'd take it over my dead body, brother, shit going on? Absolutely none. We don't have that culture here. We were just like, alright, that sucks, give up our gun. We're weird, we just do what we're told a lot of the time. Yeah. I do want to talk about this water privatization because uh, it is pretty horrific. So this other article that you sent me, Jared, it's called Australia, a Disaster of Water Privatization, an interview with Water for Rivers spokesperson Tracy Carpenter. And this came out last year around this time, uh, February 2020. No, two years ago. Sorry. I forgot we're already in 2022. Do you want to read this one too, Jared? Uh, sure. So, when Eastern Australia is facing its worst water crisis in living memory, in New South Wales, that's our biggest state, that's where I live, in New South Wales, rivers that no one remembers having run dry in the past have ceased to flow, and there are dozens of regional towns staring down the barrel of day zero, which is when there's no water left. So that's a thing that we have in our lexicon, day zero, that's a very normal thing to have. What do people say about day zero? Like, Do people make plans for it? I'm sure you have preppers, of course, but do normal people like plan for it? If you live in the middle of nowhere during bushfire season, it's normal to fill up your bathtub with water. They get tanks, you fill those up with water. Like, yeah, it's fucked. Mm. They tell people you have two options, leave or stay and defend, and they recommend you leave. Yeah. But some people stay. Staying and defending is a bit of a thing that a lot of people do. They have, like, dead up shit on their property with hoses, like high-pressure, proper hydrant hoses to defend their property from these fires, and then... A lot of them end up dying. It's so fucking stupid. Yeah, they're recommended to leave, but some people don't want to leave. Oh, and that's the other thing is like the bushfires burned down like tens of thousands of houses and our government pledged to support rebuilding them and none of them have gotten any money yet. So it's just... <laughs> that's about right. Yeah. Yeah. This was right before COVID and there's these people who are having precarious living conditions or homeless because of the bushfires and then COVID comes around and they're still like, no, nah, we got no money for you. Sorry. So... Wonderful country. Yeah. Yeah, so day zero, which is when there's no water left. Regional centres along the Barwon-Darling River system, such as Menindee, Walgett, Burke, Brewerina? Brewerina. we got some stupid names for places. have <laughs> uh, feared running out of water since early last year. And other towns like Bathurst, Orange and Dubbo, excellent towns, <laughs> are looking towards a similar fate. First Nations communities that are really bearing the brunt of the water crisis. 60% of Aboriginal people living in New South Wales are located along the Murray-Darling River, and their way of life is being intricately linked to these threatened waterways for tens of thousands of years. So the Murray-Darling is like the biggest water system in New South Wales, and it's very important to Indigenous people. And because of these fucking farms, these fucking farms that steal water, and they're not like mum-and-pop farms or whatever, these are shithead agribusinesses, but also mum and pop farms, fuck them as well. They're growing crops like cotton. Just for context, cotton, it needs a lot of water and it should not be grown in Australia. Like it just shouldn't be grown in this country and it is. So these people are stealing water from this river system that is used by indigenous people and also goes into dams to feed entire cities with water to grow fucking cotton. Like it's beyond absurd. It seems too simple to me, but like when you have that much fucking ocean water around you all the time, they feel like, the effort should be made to get it from there if you're really having this many struggles with water. We have desalination, but desalination is still like stupidly expensive and most countries don't use it that much. Because it's like, the thing is you're producing all this water through desalination, but the amount of energy it needs means you're burning even more fossil fuels. Mm. You know, just making the problem worse. 
even though we have like the most sun in the world, only like 20% of our electricity is generated by solar panels. So we're not known for like being smart about anything related to resources. We're busy selling our resources to private companies. That's what we're doing. Yeah. It's very important work. Yeah. They're padding wallets, Mike. Calm down. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Let's talk about like rational shit. <laughs> Things that would help people. All right. We're wallet padding and then we're going to move into disaster capitalism. That's a whole different thing. <laughs> yeah. Do you guys know what a fish kill is? Have you heard of a fish kill? Mm-hmm. We had a fish kill in the Murray-Darling River in 2019 where one million fish died because the cotton farms had stolen so much water from the river that there wasn't enough water to carry enough oxygen for the fish to breathe. So about one to 10 million fish just died and just floated up to the top of this river and it like decimated populations of all these very important fish species. Yeah, but you know, we made some nice cotton, so it's pretty good. The shirt's made of cotton, probably from the, you know, one million dead fish for yeah. this. Yeah. <laughs> but while government likes to talk about the devastating drought the nation is going through, grassroots activists assert that this is no drought at all. Rather, it's very much a human-caused water crisis born out of policy, hoarding, and mismanagement. That doesn't sound quite right. It can't be that. <laughs> so the next thing is uh, for the benefit of uh, corporates. The South Australian Royal Commission into the Murray-Darling Basin identified floodplain harvesting as playing a major role in water insecurity. And the Australian Institute outlined last month that in northern New South Wales, harvesting continues to be unregulated and unmeasured. This captured water is being stored in privately owned dams. The Institute further revealed last October that around 20 to 30 such dams have been constructed along the Murray-Darling over the recent years. And they've been heavily taxpayer subsidized. Jesus, dude, that's fucking ridiculous. Yeah. Just building your own dam. Fucking cool, man. No one's going to stop me. But of course, it's taxpayer subsidized as well. Oh, absolutely. Why, why wouldn't taking the water away from indigenous people and then eventually the working class people, why wouldn't you also make the taxpayers pay for that and subsidize the companies, you know? Ooh, I got a question. Do they, over in Australia, especially with all the water and stuff, do they like push the whole personal responsibility trope with water usage like they do here with like carbon footprint? Yeah, we do water restrictions, and it's enforced by the police. Of course. Yeah, you can't water your plants when we have water restrictions. You can't have showers for more than three minutes, so the police come in and watch you take a shower. No, they don't do that. Yeah, that sounds like Australia. That sounds like a very white people thing to do. Yeah. it's um, White people police state monitoring showers? Yeah. <laughs> Wait, do you have a license for that shower? <laughs> Oi. <laughs> you got your shower permit? Yeah, did you register your shower? Yeah, yeah. And also, you can't wash your car. So if you go around with a really clean car, they're going to be like, what? Oh, no. You fucking, you and your clean car. Imagine a handful of guys that, like, really love their car and take care of it, and they got, like, dust shit, like... Dry wax or some shit. Like, yeah, something that they take care of their car with, and they keep getting pulled over, because <laughs> cops think they're fucking washing their car. Yeah, and it's like, uh, people will talk. People will dob each other in if someone's lawn looks too good during water restrictions. So. That means turn each other in, dob each other yeah, in. Yeah, dob. Oh, yeah. Is that another thing? Dude, we don't have Hobbit speak over here. I'm sorry, buddy. Like, yeah. <laughs> Surely it's not real. Dude, this dude's lying to us. We brought him huh? on a second time. <laughs> I love that. I take that word for granted. Dob. Yeah, you dob someone in. It means to tell on them. Yes. We would say narc, I guess. Like, Yeah. Yeah. Snitch, um, narc, rat. Something like that. Yeah, rat is probably the thing. Yeah, I'd rather yeah, than mouth. That's a ridiculous word to use. Oh, you hear Tony? He fucking ratted out his neighbor for using too much water on his lawn. 
Oh, that sounds like Tony. Like, yeah. It's just so ironic as well that we like have these water restrictions and it's like, I won't have like 30 minute showers, but I don't give a fuck if my shower goes for seven minutes instead of four or five instead of three. I don't care. Like it's, you find out about this shit happening and it's like, what is the point? You know, yeah. personal responsibility. Yeah. What about these guys? They're just stealing water, literally thieving water. God. Anyway, so it says here, oh, this is an interesting fact. It says here, the recently constructed dams in the Murray-Darling Basin do not help drought-stricken towns. That's so, that's a, well, yeah, crazy. Um, struggling small irrigators or the wider public. Uh, the Dam Shame Report explained that we, that's awesome name for a report. Dam Shame Report. <laughs> I, I agree. Amazing. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, so yeah, they are built with taxpayer money on private land, many for the benefit of large corporate agribusinesses. Um, as the ABC's, ABC is like the BBC or whatever, it's our version. As the ABC's four corners exposed back in mid-2017, there's been serious issues around the theft of water from the river systems and this unlawful pumping and tampering with meters has seen cotton growers illegally using water for their benefit whilst towns have gone without. So the Murray-Darling Water Plan was established in 2012 this agreement is between the federal government, four state governments, and the Australian Capital Territory, and it's supposed to sustainably govern the use of these waterways, which are the lifeline for numerous towns through five jurisdictions. However, last month, New South Wales Deputy Premier John Barillaro threatened that his state would pull out of the plan unless major changes are made. And now the federal government is withholding millions of dollars in funding for New South Wales as it failed to complete and submit required water resource plans. So basically our government's just cock-blocking any, like, government plans to try and do something about this water theft. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... I'm shocked. Yeah, I know. Sydney criminal lawyers spoke to Water for Rivers spokesperson Tracy Carpenter about the regional towns that are currently facing Day Zero why privatizing rain is not a good idea and the problem with privatizing corporate needs over all other. I like how this is a discussion. Like, yeah. this is something this we even... should sit down and have a heated debate. We're going to have a committee to discuss why people need water. To live. Yeah, we've got to go into the statistics of it. You know, how much is it going to cost? Yeah, and then they'll be like, oh, we've done all these studies that have determined that privatization is in fact bad. And it's like, yeah, I could have told you that without doing studies like it. I'm surprised there wasn't like, oh, we got studies done and privatization is actually good. Oh, who is the study by? Oh, this uh, privately funded think tank over here. Yeah. You know? Uh, yeah, the think tank called the uh, the Australian Institute for Stealing Water. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, they're reputable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we should privatize this shit. They're reputable. The thing yeah. is, it would be the Australian Institute for Water Equity, and it would be sponsored by the Chamber of Commerce and like no, the the no. ASIO, and it would be like <laughs> it's got a World Bank sponsorship, yeah. democratic distribution of water, yeah. collective. <laughs> so. The first question they asked was, how would you describe the extent of the water crisis in New South Wales? And she basically says that the removal of water has had flow-on effect to the bushfires. It's a twin dynamic between climate change and mismanagement of water. They're all very much linked. So, yeah, that's pretty obvious. Um, Over recent months, there's been talk about day zero, which is a time when towns could run completely dry. It recently came to light 
that the New South Wales government has evacuation plans for up to 90 regional towns and includes your former town of Bathurst. So that's awesome. Um, oh, I want to say, like, just because to my ears it sounds like Bathurst, which sounds like kind of based in Saddam Pilled, but it's Bathurst, as I would say here in fucking Yankland. Yes. Just to, just to clarify yeah. for the listeners, sorry. Mm-hmm. So it says, what's the likelihood at present that certain towns actually reach day zero in the coming months? So there's a report on the ABC saying that 55 towns will reach day zero, and that's due to recent rainfall. Again, not just something that happens. The other question is, uh, what role does privatization play? So she puts some stats in here. Prices for water have been driven sky high because the government last paid $2,700 a megaliter for a deal it did with the EAA, which was the company set up by Angus Taylor, the current energy minister. Awesome. That's so awesome. Um, so that's, that's one of the guys in government who has a private company and he's doing deals with the government with his private company. I would make a joke and say that's like that Trump level corruption where he was hiring people from like communications companies to head the FCC or whatever it was. But it's like, I can't even pretend that Biden's not doing the same shit. So whatever. Yeah. So because of this price hike, it has priced small to medium farmers out of agriculture the only way they can turn a buck is to sell their low security water licenses. Cool. Awesome. We got licenses for water. The cost of water doesn't justify them farming. The only people that can afford water now are the large-scale corporate irrigators and mines. And that's having an impact on catchments and inflows to dams, which are the water supplies of those towns that are all facing day zero. It's not only a drought, although the government tends to talk about it like it is. The fact that inflows and the water being captured in floodplain harvesting aren't getting into the water systems. It's being held in private dams by speculators who are driving it up to the highest price. So it's really a disaster of water privatization. So these motherfuckers are like doing water speculating. That's like a meme. Yeah. They're, they're like, oh, that's going to be the thing in the future is water spec. We're doing it right now in Australia. So that's awesome. <laughs> um, nice. Yeah. So they're like, they're holding on to water and driving the price higher than selling their water. So that's really cool of them to do. Love it. So water is actually being harvested by people who are simply holding on to it to sell? Question mark. Yes. As an example of maladministration is that the federal government stepped in to set up a fund to improve water efficiency. It was two-pronged. The first part was they were going to insist that there were flows into the rivers for the environment to keep the rivers flowing. That was to be achieved through water buybacks, which had been undertaken by the states and federally. So they're just going to buy back the stolen water. That's their great solution is to buy back the stolen water. Instead of just seize it, you know, with guns, like send the army or the police in to just take the water by force, which is a thing governments can do in a situation like this or in general. They're like, no, we'll buy it back. Just, just, Isn't it's capitalism just, like a really cool and awesome system? Love it. There's like multiple layers of people scamming each other. Corporations are scamming the government. The government's like scamming the people. Then the government's also scamming these companies. It's like everyone's scamming each other up along this like fucking Ponzi scheme that they've set up. Fucking unreal. Yeah, so the rest of the questions are pretty fucking boilerplate. Okay, so here's the government's role and response. So... She got asked about the government's role in response to the water crisis. She said, it's abysmal and corrupt. One of the most criticized decisions was that the Katrina Hodgkinson altered the water sharing program for the Bowen Darling Rivers. 
It changed the high security class water rights and it allowed the big corporates to effectively pump up the river, even in medium to low flows. So they get their high security license, which means they get their water first and no other needs are recognized under that correction to the water sharing plan. Water sharing plans are drawn up with the communities making allocations for all users. So she effectively overrode a long and hard negotiated agreement to benefit the high security license holders, which are the big corporates. Everybody else in the drought situation missed out. There are questions over the legality of the minister overriding that system of negotiation and agreement. It's now developing into a full constitutional crisis because the New South Wales is talking about withdrawing it from the plan, but there's never been an agreement between the states that's involved one of them withdrawing from it. It's a constitutional crisis that nothing's going to happen, unlike the other constitutional crisis in 1975 where we we cooed our prime minister, that, that one. Yeah, so that's pretty much the end of the article. Yeah. So, yeah, we're doing basically the same shit you guys are doing, but, like, somehow worse. I guess we're not doing slavery or whatever Nestle's doing, but we have Nestle here. And, yeah, I was actually going to ask, um, what I was going to say is, uh, since you finished up that article, we have, like, about half an hour left of, like, our recording time that we usually set aside. Maybe we could spend the last time talking about your refugee camps and literally concentration camps that you have on the islands outside of your country. I can just like pull up an article real quick that we could reference, but I'm sure you can tell us a little bit about yourself just from what you know. But um, I was going to say, I'm actually surprised you guys have not taken advantage of them for labor. Like I'm surprised you guys are not just like taking them out of the camps and putting them into sweatshops. We're setting up sweatshops in the fucking camps. That's what I mean. Like, I don't know if that's like a, something to applaud you guys for or not. Like, I don't know what's worse. Just being in a concentration. I don't think they figured it out yet. They're like, like still scheming water. Yeah. We wouldn't, they wouldn't get away with doing that. That's like a step too far for them. The public backlash would be so huge, they wouldn't do it. Sometimes public backlash actually affects policy here occasionally. And in my opinion, that would be one of the things that wouldn't be allowed. But just having them in camps is allowed and the public don't seem to care, like at all. It's not even talked about. Since COVID, we stopped talking about it and the bushfires. We were talking about it a little bit. I know I asked you about it on the previous episode that we had you on for, and we probably said the same thing last time. It obviously deserves its own episode that we could talk about, but just to touch on it again, like I can pull up an article here. Let me just Google. It's, um, is it Christmas Island that it's called? Christmas Island, yeah. Very normal name for a place. Yeah. I mean, the first thing that comes up is from The Guardian, again, Christmas Island, Australian News, and this is from March 4th of last year. And there's another article from February 2019, Australia to reopen controversial Christmas Island detention centers. I'll give you a break and read if you like, Jared, unless you want to read this one. No, no, you can read this one. Here, I'm gonna, I'll put the link in the waiting room so you can see this uh, super handsome dude, Baruz Buchani. Oh, damn. I know, I wish I looked like this dude. He's like that dude who plays Jesus, but like better looking than that. His eyes are dreamy. Wait, which guy? Oh, Baruz Buccini. Yeah, he's he bra- Right? <laughs> what a chat, dude. Yeah, he can get it. Actually, I'm not even seeing an article here, unfortunately. I'm just seeing a lot of dreamy pictures of Bruce Bichani. <laughs> oh, God, yeah, there's just more. <laughs> there's no article. Like, uh, is it just the two quotes and really good-looking pictures of him? Okay, so hold on. An article. Okay, yeah, I had to click his dreamy face on that. Which dreamy face? <laughs> just, <laughs> so this one is called, uh, The Pattern is Clear. Australia's next election will be a competition on cruelty. Last week, the Australian government announced it will end the quote-unquote offshore processing in Papua New Guinea within three months. This shock announcement is deeply destabilizing for refugees who have been in limbo for more than eight years on Manus Island and now in Port Moresby. For many of us who have been following Australia's cruel and punitive refugee policies over the past two decades, this was not unexpected in the lead-up to an election year. 
Recently, I delivered a talk at the Canterbury University of New Zealand alongside Abbas Nazari. Abbas was one of the children rescued by the Tampa in 2001. Who are the Tampa? I don't know. It's not, that's not an Australian word. No, that's like a place near Sterling. It's a Florida word. Yeah, they were rescued by people in Florida. That sounds right. That's a weird Florida man article. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the Tampa affair. Right. Yeah, yeah, I remember this. Yeah, this was the boat that John Howard allowed to sink and kill a bunch of refugees. John Howard was our prime minister at the time. Yeah, it was a distressed fishing vessel. Yeah, that's what the Tampa was. Oh, okay. After a period of uncertainty and limbo, Abbas and his family were finally transferred to New Zealand. It was a surreal moment when the two of us, having been subjected to Australia's cruel and inhumane policies and actions two decades apart, reunited. We were like two pieces of a puzzle, carrying the same story, a story which has been repeated again and again over the past two decades. Abbas shapes his speech around former Australian Prime Minister John Howard's infamous statement, quote, we will decide who comes to this country, delivered just a few months before the 2001 election. Howard's statement and its multifaceted implications continued to reverberate. I shaped my speech around the lead-up to the 2013 federal election, when on the 19th of July, two months prior to the federal election, former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rood announced that all people seeking asylum and arriving in Australia by sea would be transferred to Nauru or Papua New Guinea. If found to be refugees, they would not be permitted to come to Australia. So even if found to actually be like legitimate refugees as opposed to like, you know, illegitimate refugees. During the 2016 federal election, both major political parties competed in demonstrating to the public who would take a tougher stance against refugees, highlighting their strong, quote, border protection policies yet again. At a time when journalists were rarely able to access Manus Island, some media outlets appeared producing inaccurate stories about the refugees. These stories, which grossly mischaracterized the harsh experience we had been and were subject to, created a false narrative in the minds of Australian people representing refugees as enjoying their lives on Manus Island's beaches and exploiting Australian taxpayers' money. Isn't that always the way, like, you dehumanize these people, brutalize them all the time, and also convince yourself that they're, like, living in the lap of luxury off of your hard-earned dollars? It's so, so fucking up. gross. It's so gross, dude. Yeah, if you look at the pictures of what these detention centers look like, if they were built in Australia, they would be shut down because they would not follow so many different laws about how you're supposed to build even prisons. Like, they're just, that's the reason they put them on other countries is one, because they don't let them into Australia, but two, because they can turn them into fucking the most inhumane places imaginable. Like, look at this picture outside the naval base on Manus Island where Australia locked him. Look at that. It's a fucking hut. It looks like Like, literally my friend has chickens, and that looks like what he keeps his chickens in. It's so beyond, and this is the so called humane, you know, the humane liberal democracy, beautiful Scandinavia of Asia that Australia is supposed to be. It's like, look at this shit. Yeah, it's my fucking, <laughs> we're fucking Nazis. Like, yeah, I mean, it's, refugees it's the cheapest thing they can make to house humans. A friend of mine used to be in the army and he worked in Border Patrol and he didn't like it. I asked him what he had to do and he said, yeah, so we'd intercept boats and I'd point a shotgun at unarmed people. And it's like, I was it's... like, cool, dude. Yeah, he said, that's what the job was is I've heard stories of Australians oh, over God. in uh, Bahrain off the coast of Iran just doing insane shit. Yeah, no, it's fucked. Yeah, so he told me he approached a boat full of refugees, completely unarmed, even the smugglers, completely unarmed, and their protocol for dealing with refugees was to pull up next to them and point a 50 cal machine gun at the boat and then hop on the boat with their shotguns and pointed like six inches from like cowering people's faces that was the procedure and then 
Yeah, and then get them on the boat, and then what they would do, which was the whole fucking irony of this, he told me they'd sit them up against a wall, and then an officer from immigration would come in and would say, who wants to go back to their country? Some people would put their hands up, they would be the smugglers. So the smugglers would get to go back to their country on a flight paid for by the Australian government. Then a guy from ASIO would come in after and would say, who are the smugglers? And the refugees would be like, the guys you just allowed to go back to their country, right? Yeah. So where we just catch and release smugglers, give them free plane rides back to their country where they can keep doing it. And then the refugees get asked if they want to go back to their country. Because the refugees obviously don't want to go back. That's why they're refugees. Yeah. Like, and yeah. the smugglers are the only ones who want to go yeah. back. So, of course, they don't want to go back to their country, so we put them in concentration camps. So that's what he told me the process was. He, didn't, he said he didn't like it very much. I can understand why. It sounds not fun. Yeah, it kind of rubbed me a little bit wrong when I threw him in these concentration camps. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to lie, brother. You know, looking back, maybe 50 slave a week uh, quota that they gave me was a little high, <laughs> if I'm being honest. <laughs> oh, yeah, he's very right-wing as well, so whatever. He's got some reprehensible opinions in general, <laughs> you know, and he was in the army. I feel like everyone in the army is very right-wing, it seems. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that's the process, I guess. Sorry, it was a bit of a tangent, but no, it was I mean, like, I just thought it was an interesting story because I knew someone who worked in Border Patrol. Yeah. You know, we see it on the news and it's so sanitized, but when he told me that it was like, yeah, no, we had to point shotguns at like cowering women and children. It's like any illusions that there's this so-called humane process going on, it's just not happening. Yeah. It's just not happening. It doesn't exist. Definitely not. There's no humane way to point guns at, unarmed people and then throw them in camps because it's just inhumane to do that in the first place look it's astounding it's just astounding no other word for it it's ironic because we started off this episode again i don't know if it was before the intro or not but um i was defending doing exactly that but for like every conservative ever and so like there is a good reason to do that it's just for voluntarily held beliefs you know what i mean and that's the the thing that I find myself harping on all the time to everyone who will listen or people who won't even, which is that like, you want to think that leftists are horrifying. Stalin was bad or like China is bad or whatever. And it's like, no, it's actually an okay thing to do to like reeducate people involuntarily detain them and teach them why they're wrong to like discriminate against other people for things that they were born with because they were born gay, because they were born like female, a different color than you. Like all those beliefs are wrong, but to then forcefully re-educate people out of those beliefs that they could abandon at any time if they actually bother to, like, learn, read history, to, like, read anything about anything. Yeah, it's actually a good thing to, like, do that to people. And so it's not good to do that to refugees, like, people who are just trying to seek a better life. It's not good to do that to them. It would be good to do that to the people who are putting them in chicken wire camps. So there is the difference there. Yeah, and also those sort of rightoid types, they chose to have that stupid ideology. That was a choice, you know. Refugees don't choose to be refugees. Obviously. I don't know, brother. We asked if they wanted to go back, and they said, no, nope, we'd rather be slaves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's pretty gross. We make your what you do to Mexican people look like good in comparison. Uh, I mean, are you good. guys like forcibly sterilizing the people there too? Because that's what they're doing in the ice camps here. No, we just forcibly sterilize people with schizophrenia, which is a thing we can do. Oh, also that's, cool. That's what we do. 
I don't know if we forcibly sterilize refugees, but we do do it to people with certain mental uh, health issues. Yeah. So, yeah, we're just cool in a different way. Yeah. Let me wrap up this article here. I'm almost to the end of it. Yep. So, yeah, there's followed by, you know, a picture of our dreamy author here in front of one of these chicken wire camps. And He's so hot. Goddamn. <laughs> so he continues, nothing could have been further from the truth. The refugees were detained in a prison camp for many years and suffered extremely harsh conditions. Reza Barati had been killed and Hamid Kazai had died of infection due to blatant systematic neglect. Many international humanitarian organizations had reported the mistreatment on Manus Island and Nauru, and Australia had been strongly condemned. This pattern or model, which involves what I call, quote, a competition on cruelty between the major parties where refugees are used as political scapegoats to garner public support prior to an election, continued to grow. In 2019, two months prior to the federal election, Prime Minister Scott Morrison visited Christmas Island with a cohort of reporters. The Daily Telegraph featured Morrison speaking of the Howard-built immigration detention prison as a, quote, hardened facility and the only part of Australia that refugees who had been transferred from PNG and Nauru through the Medevac legislation would see. The Morrison government reopened the Christmas Island prison camp that year at a cost of $185 million to taxpayers. So am I to believe that... This, okay, so it says Scott Morrison visited the camps before the election, pointed out how bad it was, called it a hardened facility, and then blamed it on his opponent that he was running against, then got elected and reopened it at a cost of $185 million to taxpayers. Is that what happened? You better believe that's what happened. I mean, oh, has yeah. anybody drawn a parallel to Biden, but like not even closing the camps and then reopening them, just like literally just doing the same shit? Like, Dude, are we, we seeing um, the thing here? This motherfucker, Scott Morrison, keeps winning elections. He makes the worst. Oh, during the bushfires, he went to Hawaii on holiday uh, while people were dying. And then, like, and when he came back, <laughs> <laughs> shit, bro. And then when he came back, there were videos of him going up to firefighters being like, you know how they do press things where they shake hands? Oh, I remember a, that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he goes up to firefighters, tries to shake their hands, and they go, fuck off. <laughs> so <laughs> awesome. Good. I wish yeah. it would have like the little fake out thing with the like <laughs> <laughs> Oh, they didn't even move. They just stood there and looked at him and just went fuck off <laughs> to the prime minister. It's so awesome. We got some based uh, individuals here in our firefighters. The firefighters are pretty based in general. Like it, it's crazy how cool firefighters are compared to compared how to cops. Lame <laughs> cops are. It's nuts. Like, people put them in the same category, and I'm like, they're fucking not. These dudes no. are saving people's lives, fucking working out, playing video games. Making chili. Eating chili. Yeah, chili. Oh, <laughs> oh, my God. Eating chili. Jacked. Just, oh, fucking dudes, dudes. And then cops, oh fucking Nazis. <laughs> like One firefighter did, like, a video on Facebook where he told the prime minister he was a cunt, and... Uh, <laughs> He got fired, and then there was public backlash, and he got rehired as a firefighter. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's so awesome. Hey. Fucking, that guy fucking rules. But yeah, that's this Morrison guy. He, he loves just putting his foot in it and doing the wrong things and calling shit a hardened facility. That's some Nazi-type shit. No, but the best part is, like, right there. literally, just picture Biden going to these refugee camps before the election and be like, this is a hardened facility. We gotta close this down. And then getting elected and then fun to get more. Like, Or someone tapping him on the shoulder and being like, Mr. President-elect, you started this facility yeah, right. in like, 2008. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, last paragraph here. I'll just wrap this up and then we can wrap up the episode tonight. A week later, a terrorist attack on a mosque in Christchurch, New Zealand was carried out by an Australian national. Only when the Australian public started to question politicians' propaganda against migrants and refugees did both parties refocus their election campaigns on economic issues, ceasing to highlight refugee deterrence rhetoric. We refugees have experienced at least four prime ministers since 2013. Now we are getting closer to the next federal election, 
and we see once again that the Australian government is using the lives of refugees for political gain. Closure of Manus leaves the 124 asylum seekers still there with a stark choice, move to detention in Nauru or accept citizenship pathways from PNG. It is easy to imagine that Morrison will appear in media during upcoming debates prior to the election, stating, quote, we are not responsible. The recent announcement obscures the reality, which is that the cruel and illegal policy still exists and that the government is attempting to hide its failure to secure a safe and durable solution for refugees. Reflecting on the past two decades, the pattern is clear. A humanitarian issue is repeatedly politicized in the lead-up to Australian federal elections, and the, quote, competition on cruelty is heightened. This model has been used to manipulate the public since the Tampa affair, and the refugees and their family members left behind are the real victims of this populist and sadistic policy. In 2021, the refugees who are still exiled to PNG are again abandoned and remain without any future. They are the only side of the story that is continually damaged. It is their lives that have been destroyed, and it is their dreams that have been extinguished. This policy of exile has been exposed as an abject failure in a myriad of ways, and it is the Australian public's choice as to whether they want to be manipulated again or not. I just want to say it's fucked up. Like, Baruz here could have absolutely been a model if he hadn't been locked up in one of these fucking camps. And obviously, I have to joke about, like, awful human rights abuses, because what else can I do in this situation? But, like, it's kind of our oh, shtick, but, like, it's fucking terrible. This motherfucker is going to win the next election as well. Not yeah. surprising. So we've had four prime ministers since 2013. They've all been from the same party. They just swap leaders when one of them gets unpopular. But we've had conservatives in power for like 24 out of 29 of the last, yeah, 29 years. 24 of those we've had conservatives in power. So these guys just keep winning elections. It's the uh, beacon of democracy. Oh, it's so great. They're going to win again despite fucking up the bushfires, fucking up COVID where we have 30,000 cases a day. They're going to win. Cutting off payments, business debt is like through the roof as well. Small businesses, on average, have like $300,000 of debt now, which is just so fucking insane. Damn. Yeah. And then this refugee thing has just fallen off the map. No one's talking about it. It's all about COVID. It's all about the bushfires. Yeah, they stop caring about refugees. I mean, I don't even see anything about it on, like, in the places that we all hang out. Like, on left politogram, like, I don't see anything yeah. about Christmas Island camps. I don't see anything about Nauru. I don't see anything about that because, again, it's just been totally forgotten. Because even in our space, it's like fucking Marxist-Leninist. Like, we're susceptible to the same thing. Like, we have media cycles just like anything. Everybody's talking about fucking mm -hmm. Biden not forgiving student loans now. Or it's like, or just fucking COVID ravaging America. But, like, people have forgotten about, like, Western Sahara or, like, Palestine for the moment or anything. There's any number of myriad causes that people could pay attention to at any given time. And it's like, now we're talking about Joe Rogan this week. So, whatever. Kind of how it is. No, I haven't even been following the Joe Rogan shit. What were they talking about right before Joe Rogan? It was actually something important. Oh, the green M&M. &M. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> but it was like the, the anti-work movement or whatever it's called, the no yeah. work or whatever. That was like an important thing, and then it's been totally subsumed by this Joe Rogan and green M&M bullshit. Mm -hmm. what the the same thing happens in Australia, Rogan? you know? Rogan, he mm -hmm. like, so Neil Young took his music off of Spotify, Joni Mitchell, a couple of the people took the music off of Spotify because... They host Rogan, and they don't want to be hosted on the same platform as the anti-vaxxer, or at least the guy who hosts a bunch of anti-vaxxers and platforms their ideas that are dangerous and killing people. So it's a legit stance to take and putting their money where their mouth is, because that's what you do in a capitalist system and you're an artist who commands millions of streams or whatever. But then also, since you know the right was freaking out about cancel culture, saying like, oh, he should just be able to say whatever he wants and host whoever he wants, and then people dug into some stuff and found some episodes that Joe Rogan apparently asked Spotify to remove when he joined them. And there were episodes including him talking to people and then just like dropping the N-bomb hard R 
dozens of times in a conversation. Yeah. And like either ironically or for comedic effect or for whatever reason he can plausibly make an excuse for it. But it's like, whatever, bro. Like the fact that you host all these far right people, you host all these white nationalists, you host Jordan Peterson and fucking Stefan Molyneux and like all these other fucking people that you host. You have Sam Harris, who's like your close ally, who's the only one defending you. Fucking Andrew Yang tweets and says that like, he doesn't think Joe Rogan's a racist because he works with people of color. It's like, what the fuck? Like, Donald Rawlings tweets and says, I'm in a studio with him and with Dave Chappelle. People are just saying, oh, he's got black friends. It's like, are you people fucking still trying this bullshit at this point? Like, <laughs> I just, it blows my mind. Uh, yeah, I think I saw a super cut of like all the Joe Rogan clips where he says the N-word. And it was like three, four minutes long. Oh my God, dude. <laughs> it's <laughs> a like, lot. <laughs> like, somebody had tweeted at Seth Rogan. They were like, I'm not going to stand for your anti-vax and your racist bullshit anymore. This is unacceptable. And he was like, I think you got the wrong person, man. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's definitely not him. Sterling's yawning, so I guess we will wrap it up. Let's do, I'm uh... always yawning. It's all right, bro. I know you're busy. feel bad for you. I just always yawn. I'll be in the gym and yawn. I don't, I don't know why. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do that, too. I actually would do that a lot when I was at the gym. I'd be, like, in the middle of sets and yawn. People are like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm just lifting, bro. I don't know, like... I was in the gym earlier with my wife, and I yawned between sets, and she's like, Yo, you tired? I was like, no, I just, just fucking yawn. <laughs> Jared, do you want to plug anything? Oh, uh, what I said, last time I did a bit, um, <laughs> tried that. last time I was like, check out Australia. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't really, I'm not part, I guess I'm going to be like a party member of the CPA soon, going to some meetings, so if any Australians listening, check out the CPA, Communist Party of Australia. They're a Marxist-Leninist party, very based, uh, very good and nice. So check them out. They probably have a group in your town. They're actually out organizing and doing stuff. They go to protests and whatnot. They're handing out the Communist Manifesto to people and putting it in those exchange of book places, which is pretty cool. So check them out. That's the only thing I'd plug, yeah. Nice. like that. Still, I'm going to plug Twitter. And leftist pod. Oh, yeah, dude. Ward? Uh, yeah, you can follow me on Instagram at Millennial Leftist, common spelling. I got backup at Millennial Marxist. And then follow me on Twitter at Ward Lolly, W A R D L A W L E Y. And uh, Costa's Patreon is Existence is Innocent, separated by underscores. And everything else is on the Linktree, Linktree slash Turn Leftist. Well, we pulled the Patreon subscribers since we. I don't think we even got any like, new ones right now. We got some new ones? We got some new ones, but like the recent new one, I don't know if you, Ward, you heard. We got somebody who called themselves the Bear Jew, which is great. Oh. I like that. But they did it in German. They're they're Bernanuda. Oh, that's <laughs> nice. So good. <laughs> All right, so thank you as always to our Patreon subscribers. Thank you to Zach, Safari, Der Bernanuda, Vincent, Nicholas Maduro, Caitlin, Gus, Kyle, Madman, Robert, Garden of Nurgle's Delights, Comrade Rev, Cosmic Crown, Michael, Dan, Liquidated Bourgeoisie, Sigmund, Stuart, Pete Zaria, Colton, El Robert, Allison, Zach, Raven Nigma, Marvin, K. Ryder, Not Drinking Water 69, Another James, Mad Boy, Elam, Venture X, Our Own Jared, <laughs> Another Jared that's not the Australian guy, Bill Killian, <laughs> <laughs> Bro You Know Marks, David, Tristan, Devante, Your Mother, Charlotte, James, <laughs> Bishop Mew, Rural Marxist, John Bovey Fan 420, Kyle, Jean Claude Manhands, Male, Phil, and Blackwater Janitor. Thank you all. Well, thank you again, Jared. I mean, this is so much fun. Yeah, we're just like in an earlier stage of decline to you guys, basically. We're just a couple of years behind. That's 
I think that's the best way of putting it. It's because you don't have guns, bro. It's because you don't have the 2A, bro. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. thanks again, Jared. Thanks, gentlemen. See y'all, comrade. Have a good one. Later. Yeah.